This is Macro Horizons, episode 98, The Bad News Bid, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of December 7th. We cannot help but feel a mixed degree of gratitude that the McRib sandwich is back during the holidays, because sometimes the COVID-15 is just an initial target. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market staged a very impressive bearish re-steepening. We saw 10-year yields push toward that target of 1% that we have been on about for quite some time, even despite a relatively disappointing non-farm payrolls print. Now, with the backdrop of increasing odds for another round of fiscal stimulus, it follows intuitively that equity prices hit record highs and we did see that steady grind higher in rates. One of the questions that we have been grappling with this week is our outlook for 2021 in terms of specific outright yield targets and the shape of the curve, and more importantly, the path to get there. We have historically relied on the seasonal patterns because if for no other reason, then they provide a baseline gauge for how the ebbs and flows of market expectations tend to occur. And in particular, the fourth quarter has conformed to the typically bearish price action we see as the year comes to an end. So in thinking about 2021, we'll lead with the punchline, and that is our year-end forecast is for 1.25% in 10-year rates. Now, that's not particularly exciting. We'll be the first ones to concede that it's also somewhat consensus at this point. Nonetheless, the more interesting aspect of it will be how it transpires. We do expect that there will be an extension of the bearishness that's currently in place right now in the Treasury market. That will get us into the first quarter. We might see 10-year yields uh, reach as high as 115, if not 125, as the year gets underway. But as the realities of the damage done to the real economy during the fourth quarter from the increase in COVID-19 cases and the subsequent lockdowns is ultimately priced into the market, the initial optimism that we're seeing drive expectations at the moment will fade and the market will recalibrate to a slower, more deliberate path back to some version of normal. After all, even the most optimistic expectations suggest that we won't be anywhere near herd immunity in the U.S. until the latter part of the first half of the year. So fast forward to the end of the second quarter, when historically we have seen downward pressure on rates into the end of the summer, we expect that those influences will combine with what will inevitably be the ebbs and flows in the direction of global immunization. Further in the curve, 
twos, threes, and increasingly fives can be put in the category of the front end. By that, we simply mean very wedded to monetary policy expectations. This is clearly evident in two-year rates that have maintained a very tight and definable range over the course of the pandemic, also the case for threes. And we do think that the Fed's forward guidance makes it abundantly clear that the zero interest rate policy won't be changed anytime soon. And so that extends that sentiment out to five. So record low rates, record low ranges as a theme in the front end of the market. At the long end of the curve, 30 years will probably be the most volatile section of the Treasury market simply because they will be responding to the dueling macro narratives of reflation versus a longer path to recovering back to some version of a new normal. So in that context, a re-steepening of 530s and potentially even 10s 30s will be largely directional. The question that this leads to is, will 30-year yields ultimately get high enough to bring in RV players and flatten that leg of the curve? That remains to be seen, and we do not expect that to be the initial trade in 2021. If anything, we'll continue to view the collective shape of the curve as largely a directional trade. So Ian, the November payrolls number comes in a little bit lower than expected, and yet the treasury market bears steepens. What's going on? I think there's two aspects of Friday's price action that need to be put into context. First, the Treasury market was already under a fair amount of pressure. The bear steepening theme had stalled out as a courtesy as the market awaited non-farm payrolls earlier in the week. And so what we saw was simply the passing of the event risk itself created an environment in which investors were content to let the prevailing trend simply run its course. Now, exactly where this will stop out remains to be seen, but for the time being, we're certainly on board with the bearish re-steepening. The other aspect of it is ongoing negotiations in Washington surrounding the next potential fiscal stimulus package will clearly benefit from a weaker-than-expected Farm payrolls print. So this is a return to the classic dynamic where bad news is good for risk assets because it implies more stimulus and more support via monetary policy going forward. And to me, what the release really represented was sort of just a passing of an event risk. The bar for NFP to miss by so much as to actually recast expectations on the recovery was pretty high. And while sure, in the immediate seconds after the number hit the tape, we did see yields fall, the speed with which that move was retraced and the fact that risk assets performed well in the aftermath really points to a dynamic where, sure, the jobs numbers underwhelmed consensus, but at the end of the day, it is several hundred thousand people brought back into the labor force, which is a good sign for the trajectory of the recovery, especially given the fact that November saw COVID cases surge and re-lockdowns re-implemented in some places. And at the risk of explanation chasing price action, I'll also offer that some of the details of the non-farm payroll report were not so dire and they suggested a bit more nuance and complexity. The first was the decrease in retail hiring. Now, this is typically the season in which retailers increase staff to deal with holiday shopping needs. But in the time of COVID, when consumers are favoring online 
purchases versus the in-person shopping experience, retailers simply didn't need to increase staffing levels. In addition, the census led to a drag of 93,000 jobs on the headline numbers. So when we drill down further to the core, what we see is an increase in average hourly earnings that came in up three-tenths of a percent month over month and left the year-over-year pace unchanged at 4.4%. Now, there's a caveat to be added here, and that is while reducing the lower-wage earning retail sector, that removes some of the low-wage jobs from the aggregate figures. So there's some composition issue at play here as well. And while a single data point's hardly a trend, it's this dynamic that will be especially important to watch in the early parts of 2021. And what I mean by that is it's going to take a recovery in the labor market to drive upward pressure on wages to ultimately flow through to consumption and thus inflation. The fact that really the name of the game for the FOMC for the next several years, not just 2021, is going to be getting core consumer prices back above that 2% level on a sustainable basis and have them expected to stay there really boils down to jobs and how quickly those opportunities lost to the pandemic are going to be brought back online. The vaccine should operate as a bit of a catalyst for this, even if the exact timing around the rollout, distribution, who's involved in the phase one, phase two, further on, dose cycle, remains to be seen. And let's face it, the post-COVID world is not going to be identical to the pre-COVID world. And so we will see some of the frontline service sector employees shift into different industries or different sectors of the same industry. We saw some of that in the hiring data where there was an increase in transportation as well as warehousing services is very consistent with the transition of commerce more to an online environment. Now, once the global economy ultimately emerges from the pandemic, one should expect most of the prior patterns of consumption to reemerge. The biggest question is still a function of the work from home revolution. How much of that will become permanent or semi-permanent? And with that backdrop, how will that change the support businesses that have been built up in dense urban areas? One of the questions that we've received a fair amount is, do we really buy into this reflationary narrative that's playing out in the market right now? I would say that while our baseline expectations are not for there to be a massive increase in realized core inflation in the very near term, that doesn't preclude the market from trading on the idea that given the amount of fiscal and monetary policy stimulus there is in the system, that a reflationary environment will be the next logical step. And within the price action this week, we saw exactly that. Ten-year break-evens rallied to their highest level since May 2019. So there are some investors that are starting to price in a more meaningful uptick in inflation. Keeping it reals. All glib jokes aside, the real rate environment is important for the Fed. And with the backdrop of monetary policy unlikely to change anytime soon, uh, if anything, provided more accommodation, I think it's safe to say that higher break-evens and lower real rates conform well to the Fed's objectives at this point in the cycle. And in thinking a little bit further about the Fed and more specifically the December 16th meeting, I just want to touch on the results from one of the questions in our pre-NFP survey. And this was about investors' expectations for whether or not Powell will ultimately decide to deliver a WAM extension of the QE buying in less than two weeks. Somewhat surprisingly, we saw 56% not anticipating the Fed to make this move. And while a lot of those answers were caveated with they want to hold off until early 2021, it was interesting nonetheless. 
And this speaks to the dynamic that has changed at the Fed during this pandemic. And the easiest way that I can characterize it is that the Powell Fed has made it a point to outdove even the most dovish expectations. So when we think about why, if the Fed were to follow through on December 16th with an extension of the weighted average maturity of its bond buying, that would happen. I think the short answer is because if they don't, the Fed fears that that would lead to tighter financial conditions via an underperformance of risk assets and an increase in volatility. So in an effort to prevent a worse outcome, there's a strong argument to be made that the Fed does have an incentive to follow through. This brings up an important question for the Treasury market, and that is how much of that is priced in? Do we find ourselves on Fed Day with the realization of a WAM extension and the yield curve all of a sudden flattens five to six basis points? I don't think that the market would be surprised by it at this point, but we are into the pre-FOMC radio silence period for the Fed. And so that means we aren't going to get any more nuanced guidance from monetary policymakers. So in your mind, is it reasonable to expect that we'll see some of this bear steepening push into the FOMC meeting? Or now that we've staged this sort of mini breakout, is the path of least resistance another period of consolidation in a slightly higher, steeper yield range until the results of the FOMC are known? Well, I do think that the Fed meeting represents an event risk not dissimilar to the non-farm payrolls print. And that means that it will inhibit how far rates can back up. But if the event comes and goes without shocking the market, then the trend toward a cheaper and steeper treasury market will reemerge into the end of the year. Now, I've been worried about trying to gauge when the wall of buying interest overseas and domestically reemerges, whether that is 1%, 105, 110, it's certainly going to be before 125 in 10-year yields. But that will ultimately be a question that we see some resolution to either ahead of or shortly after the calendar turn. And we talked a lot about what the upper end of the yield range will look like. And I just want to touch on a point you've made this week, Ian, which is given the developments on the vaccine, we've reached a point where investor sentiment has a little bit of a quote unquote pessimism floor. So the fact that vaccine rollout is already underway means that we will in fact reach an end to the pandemic. And at some point that is now foreseeable, we will be able to return to some version of normal. Sure, the behavioral ramifications from the pandemic are going to be around for much longer, but the fact that the end to COVID-19 is now in sight should limit how far any pessimism and thus downside in yields can run, at least in the medium term. Yeah, and I would add that in the medium term, that 75 basis point level in 10-year yields does represent meaningful resistance if we do find ourselves in a flight to quality environment. However, and in keeping with the traditional seasonal patterns, the fourth quarter has been characterized by upward pressure on U.S. rates as a certain degree of optimism for the year ahead is priced in. I'm content to conclude that it is very hard to envision a world in which 2021 is any worse than 2020 was on a number of levels, not least of which being a global pandemic. And we received a thought-provoking question this week looking beyond 2021 and how we expect the broader cycle will ultimately play out. 
We've talked a lot about our steepening ambitions for 2021. The same logic will probably underpin our thought process into 2022. But as we move further out into the future and the damage done by the pandemic is retraced to a greater and greater degree, there will eventually come a point when the Fed needs to begin the conversation about normalization. Now, Ian, I think you and I are on the same page that that will first come in the form of a tapering of QE purchases before ultimately stopping bond buying. And then we'll see a conversation about liftoff. But looking out over the next five, six years, one thing that's going to be meaningfully different from cycles past is that we've now entered this structurally lower rate environment. That means the cycle steeps that defined prior cycles probably won't be reached this time around. Yeah, I agree. And it's very consistent with the idea that Western economies are increasingly resembling Japan's. So the Japanification of treasuries might, at least in the near term, be a very real narrative. Although ultimately, I don't expect that the U.S. Treasury market is going to resemble the JGB market. So what you're saying is yields aren't big in Japan? They are not, but they are under very strict control. I see what you did there. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have very little in terms of economic data until the end of the week, and price action will largely come down to the technical aspects as 10-year yields remain near 1% and the ongoing progress in Washington toward cobbling together yet another fiscal package. As it currently stands, estimates are for slightly less than $1 trillion in terms of the next fiscal deal. And presumably, if that does come to fruition, it will be around the beginning of 2021. On the data front, we do have a series of auctions in the week ahead, including 38 billion 10-year yields and 24 billion 30s. Now, auction receptions, generally speaking, have been surprisingly good, all things considered. And so we don't see anything that would suggest that there won't be ample underwriting interest to take down the auctions at close to the prevailing rates, uh, keeping in mind that these are reopenings, not refundings. If we do find ourselves in an environment in which rates have managed to move even higher, investors might simply take advantage of the liquidity provided by the auction to scale in in a classic dip buying fashion. Investors will also see an update of core inflation later in the week, and that will be the primary data input of note. As it currently stands, expectations are for core CPI to have increased by one-tenth of a percent in the month of November. And when we break down what have been the major drivers of inflation, shelter costs continue to matter. Used auto prices spiked early in the second half of the year and have moderated somewhat. And we've also seen a fair amount of fluctuation within the apparel category. With the holiday shopping season now largely online, it will be useful to see how some of that buying has flowed through to the core categories of inflation and what that implies for the year ahead. Now, there will clearly be some base effects created by that massive drop in inflationary pressures that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. So it's difficult not to skew the risks toward the upside in terms of inflation as 2021 unfolds. That said, we're not anticipating that in realized terms, 2021 will be the year of inflation, but that that will be the primary trading thesis that keeps upward pressure on rates further out the curve and leads to a grinding, steepening bias as the year unfolds. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. <laughs> 
and with the holiday shopping season upon us, we'll suggest that no stocking stuffer says better luck next year quite as well as a free subscription to Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.